I realized that it's almost like a kind of a trauma for me that unhappiness killed my father. Not being you is the worst kind of oppression any human being has to go through. Okay? And, and as a matter of I fact... I love that. Hmm? I love a, that. That's so beautiful. Matter, forgiveness is not for the person that you forgive. Forgiveness is for you. Okay? It's our, it's our innate nature to be happy. We just fall out of happiness. What would you say is your biggest misconception of happiness? The, the biggest misconception of happiness is that it's given to you. Okay? When in reality, your happiness is a choice. Absolutely. Out loud. I spoke it out loud. I said, what the F did you just say? I do not accept my brain manipulating. Mo, now that! Former chief business officer of Google X, hashtag one billion happy. Happiness can be learned and shared by one billion people. I had a near-death experience myself. What happened? I, I had a, I was going through a... How do you become stronger so you can handle more? This, like, this is a CEO-like question. I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> Hi guys, welcome back to my channel and welcome back to Find Your Light, my podcast. And this is our first podcast of the year. And I'm so excited. This guest is amazing and his story is so inspiring to me, especially as someone who is really big on mental health and understanding myself, my emotions. His book has been life-changing. So welcome Mogo Dat, the former chief business officer of Google X, and most importantly, the author of Solve for Happy, an amazing book on happiness. He's also the author of Scary Smart and Those Little Voices in Your Head. And he's a really smart, amazing man who honestly is really down to earth and changing the world and making it a happier place. Can I call you Dr. Happy? No, okay, engineer happy. But I feel like you're the happy doctor. Yeah. Like that's kind of what oh, thank engineers you. do, right? They doctor things and they create a like roadmap for you to solve something. And I yeah. feel like you are Dr. Happy. I feel like that should I'll, be your I'll new take that. nickname. I'll take that. Everyone from now on, Dr. I'm Dr. Happy. happy. <laughs> I love that. So welcome thank you. Dr. Happy Mo to the show. Thank um, you. It's so good to have you. And Amazing to be with you. Thank you so much. It's so good to see you in real life. We connected yes. on social a while back and I'm just such a huge fan of your work and I'm so inspired by your story and everything that you do for the world. It's such a beautiful Beautiful thing. I'm such a huge fan of your personality, of oh. who you are. I mean, I studied you as well. Did because you? I, Yeah, of oh course I gosh. did. I am, um, you know, uh, I, I, I get very interested in the people that I speak to. And I Thank think you. you're such a, a kind, sweet, um, purpose-driven human. For, for the typical image of social media, I think this is quite a special place to be. Thank you, I'm gonna blush. <laughs> Thank you so much. That means a lot. So you weren't surprised by the gold microphone then? The gold microphone is pushing me a little bit. I mean, with the, with the Middle Eastern, the, you know, the deep voice and the oh. beard, I'm a bit uh, uh, uncomfortable. Oh, no. <laughs> it's so funny. But I'm so happy to have you here. And I would love to share your story with my community um, because, of course, you have such a huge following and a lot of people have been familiar with your work. But I would love to share with um, my followers, like, why... Do you care so much about happiness and, and sharing happiness with other people? You know, um, I, I look at myself and I was just trying to reflect it. Like, why does Mo care about this so passionately? And I was like, you know, for me, I'm a very sensitive person. I have a lot of emotions. So like for me, I like to help people. I like to see people feel Clearly. 
happy because of my own sensitivities. So I'm just wondering, is that something that you've had your whole life or did it happen after Ali's passing? You'd be amazed, actually. I only discovered this, Yamuna, when I was uh, writing my very last book. So it's not published yet. It's called Unstressable. And, um, and I, uh, um, I'm working with a co-author, uh, an incredible British young woman who lost her dad to stress. And when she told me her story, I actually remembered, which was not, it wasn't present in my mind, that I also lost my dad to stress. Really? And I never knew that because wow. as a young man, I remember vividly, I was 25 maybe, and my dad uh, was, which was an incred incredible human being. He was uh, very dedicated, very successful, but something happened in, in the company he worked in um, you know, around 25 years in, he really had an, a distinguished career and, they, and, and he, he had to move to another branch of the company. And some thought took over his mind and that thought was, they never appreciated me. And for several years, I could watch my dad as he deteriorated with that one thought eating him from the inside until, of course, you know how stress works. You start to become ill and, you know, it, eventually he, you know, he, he fell on the floor in my arms oh and, my and had, a, a, um, you know, a heart attack. Oh, wow. And, and, and I never really related it to my militant approach to stop unhappiness. But, wow. but when I was working with Alice, I realized that it's almost like a kind of a, of a, of a trauma for me that unhappiness killed my father. And as a result of that, I'm sort of so determined that nobody is ever unnecessarily unhappy. And in my engineer's mind, I don't think unhappiness is a necessity at all. So, so that's why I'm just so, uh, you know, actively trying to take everyone out of unhappiness and everyone out of stress. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear about your father. He was and an amazing God man. Bless him. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that must have been really hard on you. And it's, it's crazy how sometimes the most traumatic experiences can really push us so you have two, you have that experience with your dad and then also with your yeah. son. It's, it's probably what drives you to be my, so passionate. Yeah, my, when, when my son Ali left the world, however, I think the motivation was different. So, so Ali, Habibi was, an, I mean, the biggest gift uh, between Ali and Aya, my wonderful daughter. Uh, I think the biggest gift I've ever been given. And Ali was not just my son, he was also very much my teacher. And, and he, uh, you know how, a parent would put his life into making his kids become the best they can. And then there is that moment hmm, when you feel, I did it, right? I, and I really, really felt that moment when Ali came to visit us four days before he left our world. He, he came to visit us and he was this tall, handsome. He was so loving. He was so wise. And he had that very very um, unusual hug. So you would hug Ali and I'm, I'm a, you know, like a larger than life man. You know, I, I've succeeded in my career. I've done so well in life and I, I would be in Ali's hug and I would literally feel like a child. Oh, wow. And I remember that there was that moment when he came, he, he lived in, um, in Boston. He was studying in Northeastern University and he just two weeks before he died, he calls us. He, he was playing in a band and they were supposed to tour the US uh, in, the, in the summer holidays. And he just called us and said, uh, come, I, I, I feel um, compelled, is his exact words. I feel compelled to come see you guys. Is that okay if I book a ticket? I said, of course, I miss you, come. And he came over, I hugged him that hug. 
and I really felt like the proudest father ever. Like it, it happened, he's now there and everything was fine. And then sadly he had a pain in his belly and, and, and uh, was diagnosed with an appendix uh, inflammation, which normally requires the simplest surgical operation known to humanity, like a four minutes operation. But the surgeon did five mistakes in a row. And uh, I, I, I'm, you know, somehow I found forgiveness in my heart for him, but every one of them was preventable. Every one of them was fixable. But somehow I think, you know, here in the Middle East, we believe that when it's your time, it's your time. So within four hours, Ali left our world. And, and, and the motivation that that gave me was uh, because of a very, I don't know if you believe in those things, but my, my daughter came to me after Ali died, Aya, and she said he had a dream. And that his dream, and he also only told her about that dream. He, they were very, very close. And, and she said he dreamt he was everywhere and part of everyone. Okay? Which, surprisingly, actually, in some spiritual, uh, in some spiritual teachings, it is actually known as death. Really? And death is to be, because the soul is not confined by space-time, right. if you want. Mm by being freed of your body wow. you're everywhere and part of everyone you're mm -hmm. not you're not restricted from being anywhere you're everywhere you're not restricted from observing anyone or connecting to anyone yeah. anyway he she said that at the time i was chief business officer of google x i had spent seven years of my life uh, running the the emerging market side of google so i opened half of google's businesses globally wow. and i i knew what it is like to, to spread the message, right? So, so I was responsible for what was known as the next 4 billion user strategy. And so in my mind, blurry as it was, you know, for having lost my child, when, when Aya said this, my businessman's mind only saw it as a target. Believe it or not, I, I don't know how, but all I heard myself saying is, Habibi, of course, consider it done. I'll get it done, okay? And how do you keep your son as part of everyone by spreading his essence. And his essence was what he taught me about happiness. So I sat down and I wrote my first book with the objective of reaching 10 million people. That was the ambition at the time. And my publishers thought I was crazy, right? But you know, maybe the universe wants it. It wants us to be happier. So within six weeks, we had reached 87 million people. That's incredible. Unbelievable. Not because of me, it's because I think it's time. And and I, and somehow the mission started and now we're aiming for one billion happy, which I don't know if it will ever happen. But in my heart... I think it will. <laughs> I, I hope so. I, I have a good feeling it will. I, 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 in my heart, I feel that Ali's essence, and I get so many beautiful messages from mm -hmm. so many people saying we're grateful for Ali for what he taught us. Mm -hmm. So Ali's essence is in a way, everywhere and part of everyone. It's just so beautiful. That is so incredibly beautiful. And I mean, I don't know how you're so, um, you're just, you're so forgiving. Like, I feel like, you know, that's so beautiful. And I guess it comes from like spirituality as well. And just yeah. being such a deep person. But like, I go through very like petty things in my life, <laughs> like way more petty. And I'm like, I think I'm such a like, goddess and like i think i'm such a angel by forgiving people on very petty matters but for you to forgive somebody over something so huge it's it takes a really big heart forgive forgiveness is not for the person that you forgive forgiveness is for you mm. i think it was gandhi that i don't remember if it was gandhi or uh, nelson mandela one of them said that uh, you know holding a grudge mm. 
is like drinking poison and hoping the other person would die, right? It's true, but it's so much easier said than done. It, it's a, it's a, in, a, in a very interesting way. I asked my, so I, my, my mind attacked me, see, you know, when you lose a child, I, I don't know if, because I haven't had other experiences or all of the other experiences, but it's said to be the most difficult thing a human could ever go through. It, it hurts, until today it hurts, eight years later. But it also messes with your identity. It messes with your view of who you are because the ego, the role of a parent is to protect your child, right? And, and when something wrong happens to your child, it just goes like, it's my mistake. I, I did something wrong. And remember, because his mother, uh, which is, I think is the mo best mother on the planet, uh, um, because of how intuitive she, she, she was, she refused to take him to the hospital. So Ali was in pain. Oh, wow. And for the first time in her life, she was like, no, 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 stay, it will go away. Stay, it will go away. So I took him to the hospital. And so my brain attacked me so strongly because it told me I was the one that drove him to the hospital. It's my mistake. Okay. And that the doctor killed him. And when you really think deeply about that statement, which doctor wakes up in the morning to say, I'm going to kill a patient and lose my career? Who, who does that? Right? The doctor, if you really think deeply inside, was motivated by relieving my son's pain. Right? He made a mistake. So if you and I make a mistake during that, this, this conversation, we're going to have to stop and cut and start again. Right? If you're a surgeon and you make a mistake, you lose a, you lose a, a patient. And, and, and my, my, my brother is a surgeon. So I, I called him. I said, Khalid, is that even possible? Does, does anyone die in an appendix operation? And he said, sadly, yes, millions of people do. It is wow. not unusual, right? It's basically, um, you know, as we always say in the Middle East, it's his time. It's his, it, is, it is his journey. But if you, if you understand death the way I understand it, you would question if Ali's departure is a, uh, a bad thing that requires me to be uh, angry at the at the doctor. By the way, I, I took the right measures for the hospital to put in the systems so that this doesn't happen again. Right? I'm not that naive, huh? but but it's it's just to save future lives, hopefully, because there is nothing you can do to bring Ali back. Understand right. that, right? But but it, but when you really really think deeply about death, hmm, I don't know if Ali is in a. I think Ali is in a wonderful place, and I think. You know, and I don't talk about that from a from a spiritual point of view. I know that by from science that Ali is a, in a very. I, I know from science that we never really die, that our bodies decay, but uh, but you know that the essence that animates those bodies continues. It has continued before the presence of time and will continue after the end of time because of, because that spiritual side to us is not governed by time and. And so in a very interesting way, this is Ali's journey. He was playing this level of the game. And then he says, okay, you know what? That's fun. I'm going to go play another level. Okay. And I too, very soon, sooner or later, you know, whether it's 20 years, 50 years, one year, it doesn't matter. Huh? We don't know when we're leaving. Every single one of us sooner or later is going to be there. So yeah, I would have wished for Ali to stay. And I wrote that in my first book. I would have wished for him to stay another 20 years. But do you think if, had, if he had stayed 20 more years, I would have said to myself, okay, you can leave now. It's always, yeah. it's always painful, right? And, and it's always, it's that one bit of life that 
sort of reminds us that we're human in a, in a world where we have bent all the rules with artificial intelligence and all of the advancements of technology. And, you know, we've, we finally, I think death is, these, is, is the only reminder remaining for us that we're human, that, yeah. that we don't control it all. Yeah, I love that. I love. I have so many questions popping up in my head as you speak. You're, um, you're so deep. I, I really love it so much. I feel like, me personally, I'm a very spiritual person. Yeah. And I feel like based off of everything you're saying, you're very spiritual too. Oh, yeah. Um, and like, I actually, I practice, I pray five times a day. And do I feel you? like, yeah, I, I love do. love that. I do too. And yeah. I feel like the reason why I do it is not so holy. I mean, it is. I'm a, I'm a believer. I practice, but it's also for my sanity because, like, every time I pray five times a day, I like remind myself to surrender to the fact that this life is temporary and like you are not in control of anything. So I feel like there is some sort of connection between like that spirituality and happiness. What do you think about that? Like, what do you see as the connection between the two? So, so first of all, I would definitely agree. I mean, and without spirituality. I think we disconnect to a part of us that is so vital to feeling complete. Now, the problem with spirituality is that it's mixed up with religion, okay? And with all due respect, religion has messed up. Every religion on earth, and, and I practice all of them, believe it or not, so I pray five times. Wow. Like, no, yeah, I do. Because if, you, if, if I told you there was, um, you know, a way for you to enjoy an incredible experience, uh, somewhere in the end of Dubai, you would probably look at Google Maps and say, what are the different ways to get there? If it's, you know, if one way is a little easier, maybe I should find out. And I studied all religions for that. And I have to tell you openly, every single one of them has some beautiful core element that blows you away and a lot of messed up stuff. Okay. And I, and I think that the problem with our world is that the messed up stuff got people switched off. And so people, when people mix religion and spirituality, they stay away. Some stay away from the element of spirituality. But spirituality is this. It, it's if, if science is the method we use to understand everything that's physical, right? The scientific method basically says if something uh, is not measurable uh, and repeat in a repeatable fashion, it's not the concern of science. We're, we're not going to be able to measure love scientifically, for example, even though we know love, love exists because there is no accurate measurement. It's not a physical element. All the non-physical, whether that's love, uh, compassion, consciousness, uh, or the part that I call spirit, which is, you know, the part that animates us, that when the part that when it when when that part disconnected from Ali's body, that beautiful, handsome body decayed, okay, disappeared. There is something that animates us. And that thing obviously is not physical. And I and I again use science to prove that because if it was physical, if it existed within the eighth, the, the space-time continuum, the physical universe, it wouldn't be able to perceive the movements of that universe. But, you know, if you were to observe this room, this building, you have to be outside it, okay? And so for us to, move, to observe the movement of time, the arrow of time, we have to exist outside time. Your spirit exists outside space-time. So it's non-physical. Now, that non-physical element of you also requires investigation and connection and, and, and contemplation, and that is not the concern of science. It's the concern of philosophy and spirituality. 
okay, which are not exact sciences, they are contemplative sciences, right? Sciences where we start to say, mm, is it this or is it that? It could be this and a bit of that, or it could be that and a little bit of this. And, and then for you to be able to get yourself to in touch with that non-physical world, you need practices, okay? So Eastern religions or Eastern spirituality will tell you meditate, okay? When you meditate, you're not really talking to God, if you want, you're talking to your divine self, and that divine self might be somehow connected to God. Interesting uh, thought, right? You know, uh, um, Abrahamic religions will say, pray to the one God, Okay, um, interesting because if we believe the story that we are as, as, as a drop of the spirit of that divine entity, then by connecting to the source, you're also connecting to your, to your divine self. You know, um, uh, others will believe in deities. So, you know, the, the, um, the uh, Hinduism, for example, will say, oh, there is a, a God for this or Greek mythology, God for this and a God for that and so on, which some people in the Abrahamic religions will get very angry about. But the reality is even in those religions, we say that there are characters of God. He's the uh, uh, compassionate, he's the merciful, he is this, he is that. They sort of embody those, if you want, characters in the different gods. Doesn't matter, okay? You can look at all of them and agree or disagree. Mm -hmm. but you have to give yourself the luxury of looking at them. If you, if you block that part out, you block part of you. It's almost like saying, okay, I'm going to run a marathon, but I'm going to tie one of my legs, right? And now you, you said, so does this make you achieve happiness? Interestingly, when I wrote Soul for Happy, I wrote Soul for Happy, my first book, as an engineer. You have no idea how accurately measured that book is. You may realize as you're reading, there are bits of that book where I say, it's time you put the book down and go and, and relax a little bit or have a drink before, right? Because I measured it, because I had readers going through the book and I knew where they dropped out and I knew what they were thinking. It's highly, highly, highly uh, accurate. And, and in Solve for Happy, the first 12 chapters talk about happiness in the physical world. Okay? And yes, you can achieve a lot of happiness in the physical world without an ounce of spirituality. But my story was losing my son, leaving my son, left this physical world. So if I give you all of the understanding of the illusion of knowledge or the illusion of control in the world, that's not going to heal you when you've lost a child. Okay? The only way you can is to, is to connect to where that child is right now, to the, to the pure essence of that child. And that requires spirituality. So let's put it this way. 12 out of 14 chapters, 12 over 14 of happiness doesn't require spirituality at all. There is, however, a bit of happiness that is related to the non, the, met, the metaphysical universe, okay, that require you to be spiritual. Otherwise, you're going to miss out on that intuition that tells you there is more to you than this physical form. I love that you, you talk about that. And I... I completely agree with you too, because I feel like to be happy, to be content, you need to take care of all of the health that you have. You need yeah, your mental absolutely. health, your emotional health, um, your physical health. But I really feel like your spiritual one is kind of like the crown on top. And absolutely. if you don't, even though it might require less time, it's that little bit of time will take you such a long way because it's just like it's letting go. You yeah. know, it's kind of like accepting that you're not in control and just it's amazing surrendering yeah. to a higher power. 
the topic of Unstressable, my next book and, and the membership that I'm working on right now. I is, signed up. <laughs> oh, did you already? Yes, I did. Oh my God, I'm so honored. Yeah. So, so Unstressable. I love the title. <laughs> I need that in my life. Yeah, which actually is, a, is a, it's really actually the intention is to make you unstressable, not to cure your stress which is very, very different. So from an approach point of view, I'm, I'm you know, my co-author, Alice, is an absolute angel. So very spiritual, very, very feminine. And I am the engineer, right? I'm very accurate in my measurements and how things work and so on. And I think that mix got us to that understanding that, you know, of course, every human is made up of four elements. Your mental, uh, you know, stress and uh, spiritual, sorry, mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual. Uh, components, elements to you can give, can be stressed, okay? And so if you leave any one of them out, you're leaving 25% or more of you uh, uh, exposed for stress and unhappiness to attack you, right? And interestingly, each and every one of those speaks to you in a language. And the problem with humanity is that we're rushing so much that we are not actually educated. So, you know, your brain is talking to you all the time. It's just lying. Simply, I, 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 I normally say your brain has never, ever, 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 not once in your life, ever told you the truth. Do you understand that? You know, so whatever your brain is telling you is the, is the combination between what you observed, which is the truth, but also your traumas and your conditioning and your perceptions and your assumptions and your emotional state at the time and so many other things. So your brain is not telling you the truth. It's telling you what it thinks is the truth, right? And if what it thinks is the truth is stressing you or making you unhappy, then we need to stop and look back at this, okay? Your emotions, huh? your emotions are talking to you all the time. They're a much more accurate language, believe it or not, than the voice in your head, but they're subtle. They're just so... Gut feeling. Yeah, they're subtle. And no, gut feeling is your spirit. Mm -hmm. So your intuition mm -hmm. speaks to you. Your, the other side of you speaks to you mm, by telling you, hey, by the way, there's something that you haven't Right? It's not, you're not feeling it yet. You're not thinking about it yet. But, you know, you, you know, the feminine is so much more capable of finding those things sometimes. The feminine would actually, you know, go like, I, I've thought deeply about this, but there's still something that doesn't feel right. Okay? That's your intuition talking to your spiritual element. Okay? And then your body, your body is talking to you, to all of us, all the time, Mona. Okay? And, and actually, Alice wrote spiritually stressed, not I. And, and when, I, when I edited her, uh, sorry, uh, physically stressed the chapter, and when I edited that chapter, so each of us edited the other person's work, I literally called her, I said, Alice, every single one of the symptom, symptoms you're writing is in me, okay? Mm -hmm. And I'm supposed to be an ha a happiness expert, but I completely ignore the language of my body. And when your body, when your neck aches, this is not a muscle thing, this is a lifestyle thing of how we live and get ourselves to the point where we feel uh, uh, stressed and unhappy. Now, when, when, you, when you start to see those things, hmm, including your, your spirit speaking to you, you become a, a, a whole human, okay? And a whole human is a balanced human, and a balanced human is one that lives as per their nature. And believe it or not, from my first book, our nature is happy. Our nature is not what we're going through every day, you know, look at any child, any child you've ever seen when they are fed and safe and given their basic needs for survival, they're lying on their backs and they're giggling and playing with their toes and happy, okay? It's our, it's our innate nature to be happy. We just fall out of happiness hmm, when things disturb that happiness. 
So I know in your book, Solve for Happy, you talk a lot about your body kind of being a vehicle. Mm. It's like you relate it to a car, which I know you're obsessed with cars. (laughs) (laughs) But that was so interesting to me because I've never really thought about my body that way. Um, But when you talked about it, I was just, it just really made sense. Like you are not your body, you know, and I think so much of our self-esteem, so much of who we are, so much Mm. of our happiness sometimes is dependent on our physical Mm. appearance or even our physical, just our physical in general. It's crazy, isn't it? It It is. Isn't it? I mean, the truth is um, uh, your body really is just a vehicle. Okay. So if, if, if I, if I put you in a place where, uh, where, you know, it's the desert, you need a four by four, right? Similarly, if, if your spirit is, is to, is to explore the physical world, it needs a physical vehicle. Okay. And for like a woman who's in the beauty industry, this is like, Nuts, you know, because like we base so much of our lives around our body and how we look and so much of our happiness. Honestly, I'm not going to lie. Personally, my happiness depends on how I look. Like if I look gorgeous, Mona, (laughs) and everyone does. You're so sweet. But honestly, if I like put on weight, sometimes I like get in a rut and like no matter how good my life is at the time, I'm just like down on myself. So let let me let me tell you this. If you go to any dating site, hmm, which so, so the reason why we are so preoccupied with uh, the, the shape of our body or, you know, the, the, the possessions that we own or the, or the elements that we put on our body, the accessories, the, the clothes and so on, is because humans uh, are, des- are machines that are designed for survival, okay? So, you know, we can push human ingenuity to have a conversation as deep as this. But if a tiger shows up right now, all of this stops, okay? And, and your, our entire being will focus on we need to survive. Now, I always say, and I, I write about that in my fifth book, which is uh, about, about love and romance. Ooh. A beautiful, beautiful When is that account. coming out? <laughs> uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm really, I, I, it's been ready six times, believe oh, wow. it or not, but I keep improving it because mm-hmm. I really want it to be perfect. And it's a very unusual yeah. approach to the topic. We can cover it a, a little bit if you want. But, but, but we, we um, want to survive. And we want, if we want to survive as social beings, humans were not the survivors of, uh, of many, many species that died because we're the smartest. This is a big myth. It's because we are smart enough to combine our efforts and communicate to each other. No human, regardless of how intelligent they were, could have survived the, the, the cave human years alone, okay? Uh, the only way for humans to have survived, survived the cave human years was for us to pull together as a tribe and together hunt once and eat all of us or whatever it is that we do. So it's so innate within us that we want to be accepted by the tribe. Now, here's the problem. The tribe... Uh, and specifically the fashion industry of the tribe, if you don't mind me saying, said there were specific uh, specifications of a human look, okay, uh, that actually makes you fit in. For many, many years, uh, uh, to their horrible mistake, it was a white woman, okay, that is skinny, uh, mostly blonde, okay, and specific uh, symmetrical features and so on. If, however, you go to any dating site, hmm, you would realize that this is not the truth at all, at all, okay? So there are uh, uh, people out there, men, women, straight, gay, whatever they are, that are looking for someone who is curvy and others who are looking for someone who is skinny, 
There are some that like a petite woman, some that like a tall woman, some that like a brunette, and some that like a you know a blonde, and some that like you know a, a dark-skinned, beautiful African woman, and others that and and so on. Right? Uh, the truth is, if you take the statistics of humanity, there is no definition of beauty. There isn't. Okay. I love that. <laughs> and uh, and that's the truth. Huh? The truth is, however, if you belong within one of those brackets of beauty, I normally simplify and say around 20% of all people will like you, okay? So if you're, say, a little curvy, okay, around 20% of all men will go crazy for you. 80% will say, mm, not my style, right? If you go on a diet and lose, you know, every, every bit of you and become extremely skinny, around 20% of all men will like you and 80% will say no, right? And it's so interesting that you will still remain at 20% regardless of which bracket you are, okay? And this was taught to me uh, uh, by my wonderful son Ali, actually, in a very unusual way. Uh, you know, the fact that if you're only going to end up with 20%, you might as well end up with the 20% <laughs> that like the real you. It's true. It's so true. So, so Ali, when, you know, because of my career, we traveled so much. When he was nine, he was moving to his 11th school, Okay which was horrible. I mean, at the time, my wonderful ex, my wonderful wife, which was my, my you know, is now my ex-wife, basically said, no, 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 we're not moving again. This is it. Go make friends. So Ali goes to school and makes a friend on the second day, Josh. And Habibi Ali was a tiny little Zen monk. He was a beautiful angel, calm, quiet, okay? Very, very, very well-spoken, but very few words. Truly, truly a monk, okay? George was the devil himself, okay? And in all, in all aspects, I mean, I hope I see that child one more time, but you know those kids that, was, that were hyperactive? He was very hyperactive, okay? And so he broke things when he was running around. He was always very loud. He always pulled Ali around everywhere. And Ali wanted to move slowly like a turtle, like he always had. And George just wanted to run all over, all over the place. The first Thursday, so he met him on a Monday. The first Thursday, he comes back home and he says, Papa, if George uh, calls... Uh, tell him, like I told him, that I don't want to be his friend anymore. Oh, no. Okay? He's nine, huh? And, oh, my God. And, and I'm like, why Ali? And Assertive. And, yeah, and before, before Ali tells me, George calls. Hi, oh, wow. is Ali home? I'm like, yes, George, but... And before I say anything, George says, okay, I'm coming, right? And oh, his mother God. drops him off in, on, in, in front of the door. And now we have George at home. <laughs> Right? So Ali comes down quietly, as he does, you know, one foot in front of the next, and you'll never know, you know. And he's just so slowly, and he goes to George, and he hugs him, and he says, George, the Xbox is in there. You, you know you know where the kitchen is. Have as much fun as you want, but as I told you, I don't think we're going to be good friends anymore. Oh, my God. Okay? Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm like now my jaw. I had jo difficulty saying that at like 30. I know. <laughs> now my jaw is dropping younger. and I'm now the, the one responsible to entertain George until mm -hmm. his mom comes back. When his mom comes back to pick him two hours later, I ask Ali and I say, why Ali? Why? What did he do? He must have done like an unforgivable forgivable sin. And Ali said, no, he's such a nice boy, but he's not like me. So every minute I spend with him, two things happen. One is I put a lot of effort to match him, okay? And the second is all of the other boys that are like me stay away from me. So interesting. So interesting, wow. right? He said, I'd rather wait another week and then maybe find a boy like me and then become friends with them. And then that way, okay, I am happy when I'm spending time with him. Wow. 
Okay. And that's exactly what happened. So wise. A, a week later, he meets Jack, which was his friend for life. Then they meet Nick, which likes the two of them. Now it's double Ali, right? Uh, which, be, which was his friend for life. Then Sammy, then Kheret, and so on, all of them. So basically, they started to have that tribe that was so identical where everyone liked everyone. Mm-hmm. Now, everyone... Staying authentic to yourself. Absolutely. But, but, and everyone, I, I will say this very openly, the only way, and, and I know that about myself, hmm? I swear to you when I, when I am you know, dating someone, the only thing I ask for is be true to who, yourself, to who you are. Mm-hmm. Okay? Just be true to who you are. If you're anxious, be anxious. I'll enjoy that. Okay? I know how to deal with an anxious woman. If you're calm, be calm. I love that too. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and the, the only thing that really triggers me is if she's anxious and trying to be calm. And mm-hmm. so suddenly I get something hitting me without even knowing where it came from. Mm-hmm. Okay? If you're true to yourself, two things will happen. Okay? One is you're going to be at your best. You're going to be in flow effortless. And the other is someone will look at you and go like, oh my God, my dream. This is my dream. I want a woman who's Can anxious. You yourself? Absolutely. I love that. It really was so wise. It was an amazing, I mean, at nine. Amazing. Like, I feel mother. like I didn't really know myself until recently. Yeah, most of us didn't. I, I, I also speak about this openly in the, in the fifth book. That yeah. I only got to know myself truly after I separated from my wife. Wow. Yeah, 40, I was 45 at the time. Wow. 47 even. I think. And because you guys got married very young. Yeah. yeah. So I feel, like, I feel like when you're in a partnership, especially a marriage, like at such a young age, it kind of keeps you in a bubble. Yeah, I mean, I, I married uh, Nibel, most amazing woman on the planet. I still say that and will say that forever. She blessed me with her beauty and kindness and spirituality. And, and she made me the person that I am. So, so when we separated eventually, I was not Mo. I was Mo that, was, that had Nibel as, Nibel as half of him, mm. right? And, and you somehow define yourself by that. And, and yes, I'll have to tell you very openly, when you look at some of your character, some of that character is built because of her presence. But in, in the absence of her presence, I was a different person. Mm-hmm. And so I needed to discover, discover, you know, discover who that person is and let that person surface and live, mm-hmm. right? Because that person is part of each, each and every one of us has a resonance. You know, you know when you play music and you have, you're tuning your guitar and you have that fork that will always make the sound of E, right? Yeah. That's, that's the resonance of that fork. Mm-hmm. And yes, you can bend it a little and touch it a little and so on and force it to make another sound, but it will not feel natural. Mm-hmm. You just want to just be you. And when you're you, I promise you, you get, tr- you, you get floods of humans flocking to that you because the energy is very powerful. I mean, I, this year was a very important spiritual year for me. And part of my spiritual practices, I decided to be a month, a monk. A monk. Yeah, so I, I've been a monk for six months. Wow. Right? Yeah, and you. I did be, not expect that. Uh, yeah, I'm, I, wow. I, I just it's so it so I I know. So what changed in your life? I know that there are three spiritual experiences mm-hmm. that everyone who's ever had insight, everyone who's ever taught us anything spiritual, has gone through. One is a solitude, so I do that twice a year, forty days. And the other is a pilgrimage, which is to roam, roam the world with no, in, with no inflow, basically in your feminine, not in your masculine. To ho- to ho- You're going to have to explain more about that. <laughs> I, I, I would love to because it's a very important topic yeah. for our modern world. But, but you have to flow in your feminine so that, so that you allow the universe 
to, or, or God or whatever you believe in, to send you to the places where you will learn what you need for the insight. And the third is monkhood. Every, every person that's ever taught us anything went through a phase of celibacy, okay? Mm. And you have no idea. I mean, I'm a very interesting monk because I go on platonic dates, right? <laughs> Which, uh, I, Friendships, I mean. Uh, yeah, I think there, yeah. Is, there is value in having feminine mm. energy in my life, okay? Mm -hmm. And feminine energy is not just being in bed together. Of course, right? yeah. And, and so the, the women that flocked into my life in that six-month period are incredibly empowering, you know, beautifully spiritual, beautifully understanding of my of my spiritual journey, and literally adding enormous value to my life. Okay, once again, because I had that urge within me, within me, I had an urge that said, "You need that experience. You need it to complete your spiritual path." Okay, and and I I responded to it by being true to myself. When I'm true to it, and I love it, absolutely love every bit of it, for as long as it will last, hmm, the right people flock to you because your energy is powerful. You're saying, this is it. This is who I am. Mm, I love that. Could you tell us more about um, number two, being in flow and mm. kind of being in your feminine energy to kind of like travel the world? Like, what do you mean by that? So let, let's... Let's cover a tiny bit um, an understanding of the feminine and masculine because this is horribly misunderstood in the West. Okay, we 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 started in a world that basically said there was a man and a woman. Man and a woman are biological definitions. These are biological, you know, uh, 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 categorizations. If you have certain body parts, you're a man. If you have other body parts, you're a woman. It's mm -hmm. Just a simple, yeah. yeah. It's it's simple. Huh? If you if you're uh, if you're at this. Um, um, age, you're uh, a teenager, that's a category. If you're at that age, you're a senior citizen, it's a category. Mm -hmm. It can be fluid, right? right. But, but basically, it is a way for humanity to say you're within that group. You're a millennial, right. you're a Gen Z, whatever. And humanity loves to categorize. The reality, however, is that every man, every woman, as I always say, man, woman, straight, gay, questioning, whatever you are, every person, hmm, uh, has a bit of feminine and a bit of masculine, okay? And, and feminine and masculine are not biology. They're not sexual preferences. Mm -hmm. They're not gender identities. They're attributes, qualities. Mm -hmm. Qualities by which we choose to navigate life. It's really as simple as that. If a masculine entity is given uh, a challenge, they would tend to work on that challenge with qualities like linear thinking, like strength, like uh, uh, analytical thinking, um, and so on, right? Um, you know, how do I, uh, who is masculine? I don't care, but there is a statistical correlation, just statistically, okay? More uh, humans that have the male body parts would tend to have those attributes, just a statistical mm. correlation. If you're a feminine, and a being, that feminine being would tend to address the same challenge with things like paradoxical thinking, a beautiful character of the feminine, uh, a creativity, um, uh, intuition, uh, empathy, um, uh, you know, um, appreciation of beauty rather than utility, which is the masculine side, mm -hmm. okay, and so on and so forth. I can list 137 of those, believe it or not, is, my, is, is the scope of my work. Wow. 137 human qualities split between the feminine side and the masculine side with compassion being in the middle. Okay? 
because compassion com- is shared. Because yeah, because compassion is the action related to the feminine empathy. Mm. Okay, but it's more around action, and the masculine is mostly about doing, even if what we do is stupid, which is sadly what's what's killing our world today, right? And the feminine is all about being, which, by the way, each without the other would mean that we do nothing at all. You understand that? So, so, so the reality is, uh, the feminine that tends to be hmm, is the space where nurturing and life giving and uh, and uh, uh, connection and v- vision happens. Okay. So, so you know, I always say and I say it with data, and I have always asked people, if you think otherwise, let me know, hmm? that no one has ever had a vision that changed the world was more masculine than feminine. Every person that had a vision that mm-hmm. changed the world was more feminine than masculine. So I say that Gandhi, even though he had body, male body parts, behaved in the feminine with, with you know, uh, um, um, peaceful resistance or nonviolent resistance, right? Uh, Steve Jobs, which had lots of obnoxious male qualities, right? At the same time succeeded because of his creativity, his appreciation of beauty, his empathy of his user needs, to his user needs and so on and so forth. So those feminine qualities of being hmm, are an enormous uh, um, necessity that we need in our world that we've sadly uh, pushed down for millennia, right? And so what ends up happening today is we are in a world that's so good at doing even though what we're doing is destroying the planet. But we do it so efficiently mm-hmm. that we're destroying the planet very quickly. Yeah. Okay? Now, when you see the, that difference, suddenly you realize that Mo, with my bald head, masculine uh, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, voice, with my uh, male body parts and my you know, straight sexuality being interested in the other gender, I have more feminine in me than masculine. Really? Yeah, I'm 58%. Wow. And uh, do, you, do you like a test? Or yeah, like yeah, yeah. So, so the, the, my, my masculine <laughs> brain developed a test that says 58 or 48 okay. and so on. Basically, it's around the, the presence and the yeah. intensity of the quality, right? So how often would I respond to life with linear thinking mm-hmm. versus uh, creativity? How, how, much, how often would I respond to life with analytical thinking uh, versus intuition? Okay, and 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 how deep would I go in each of those? And if you do, if you go through the test, it's a, it's a an interesting test that will be part of book seven, and a part of it is part of book five around love. Is basically uh, is how do you take on life? Do you mm-hmm. take on life with your feminine qualities or with your masculine qualities? Now, you asked about flow and the pilgrimage. I, being fifty eight percent feminine in my analysis. Could be right, could be wrong, doesn't matter. Okay, but I'm definitely more feminine mm. than masculine, even though I'm very manly, right? Mm. Um, um, it's so funny because I'm the opposite. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, y- yes, you're, you're very like, do- yeah, you're very um, capable of doing. It's so funny. For the longest time, I I kind of blocked my feminine energy there completely, you go. and I was just operating in the masculine, there you go. and I kept running into so many mistakes in business. Mm-hmm. I kept running into a lot of situations where I blocked my intuition. I wasn't trusting my gut and I was doing so much, but I was actually running into so many walls and I did a lot of therapy. And that's when I realized like, I didn't know I had this blockage. And after like working through the blockage, my therapist gave me some activities to do to like kind of channel my feminine energy. My entire life changed Absolutely. and I started making better decisions. I yeah. still have a lot of masculine energy, but 
I'm now more open to both. So I really want to do this quiz. I find it's, it so it's quite, interesting. It's so interesting when you think about it, huh? that we, everyone, man or woman, we block our feminine energy. Why? Because we're told that success in the modern world requires mm. more masculinity. So if you go and work, you, you started work in investment banking, if I remember correctly, right? Yeah. That's a hyper-masculine world. And so they teach Very. you. Yeah. <laughs> they teach you openly that if you want to succeed here, it doesn't matter how feminine you just are. Just be a robot. <laughs> yeah, you just have to show up as a man. Yeah, right? basically. And, and, and so, of course, at a young age, we get conditioned. I, I lived in that corporate world for years. I was very good at it. Mm. So I, I had to align to my masculine abilities. Right? I think it was a coping me mechanism Absolutely. too. Um, because I am naturally a very emotional, sensitive person. So I'd always just try to suppress my emotions and like not deal with them and then just be productive. And how, so like, and how good would, did that work for you? I mean, there was pros and cons Absolutely. for sure. <laughs> my feathers yeah, um there are pros and cons <laughs> don't cut that out no, of the podcast that honestly that's so cute all right so so but 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 here's the thing the thing is even if you're able to do it i find that amazing not being you is the worst kind of oppression any human being has to go through okay and and as a matter of I fact as a matter of fact Every woman that's ever been part of my life as a friend, uh, you know, as a follower, as a reader, someone that sent me a, 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 a question, you know, a woman that blessed me with her, you know, uh, love. Any woman that's ever been in my life was actually less acting less feminine than, wow. than she was uh, su supposed to, to, to act as per her nature. Interesting. Why? Because once again, balance. yeah, once again, we're demonizing the feminine. Mm. Which is so stupid because, as I said, no one's ever changed the world without being more feminine than masculine. Now, the game for me, so I, I wrote a book called Her, which was about that dichotomy between the feminine and the masculine. And I decided to, not to publish it yet, actually. I'll, I'll, as I said, it's going to be book seven, simply because I, I think I need to establish other cornerstones to, for that to come out. But Her mm -hmm. was all about, are we right uh, um, uh, empowering women, okay? When by empowering them, we're forcing them to be more, to become more masculine. Because when you really think about it, the most successful women that are in positions of power, sadly, learn to be competitive and aggressive and assertive in certain ways around business mm -hmm. and so on and so forth, which is actually not the way the feminine is at all. So by empowering them, we're also empowering the masculine. Okay? And by empowering the masculine more and more, we're creating a playground, if you want, where the rules of the masculine rules. Okay? And that's depriving every feminine entity, including myself, who is more feminine than masculine, from being myself. Mm. Okay? And is, wouldn't we have a better world if we actually allowed the game to change? The game itself should change. Because if the game of of success in the world changed. If we suddenly said, success is not going to be GDP growth, but success is going to be happiness, or success is going to be saving our planet from climate change, then suddenly our masculine traits absolutely should, should be deprioritized. Okay? And suddenly the world that we live in will be a fair game. A fair game where, as one of my favorite books is, is called The Master and His Emissary. Right? which basically talks about the feminine and the masculine and says we need them both, but we need the feminine first. 
So, I love that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You need the feminine's intuition. Yeah. You need the, the feminine's ability to embrace paradoxes. You need the feminine's ability to have empathy to every other need, to the oneness of all of us, to say, hey, by the way, let's not make a bigger aeroplane, mm. okay? Or let's not upgrade to the iPhone 15 at the expense of the planet. Right, and and so and and then we all decide that we need to have GDP growth without with those limitations in mind, and then the masculine can go do it. Mm. Okay, the challenge we have today is that we are doing without being, and without being, you're not aware of the impact of your doing. And that's a very dangerous place to be. It's a very very dangerous place to be. I have to say openly, and you know, and I I wrote about that several times, and almost in every one of my books. If we don't start empowering the, plan, uh, the, 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 the feminine, empowering it to the point that it leads, okay, I think we are at a very serious risk of losing the planet, okay? Losing it in a way that will force us to empower our feminine, right. believe it or not, right? It's, you know, so eventually, I know sooner or later, and there are lots of astrologists and so on that say it's coming, okay? The feminine will lead in the next decades, right? But is that our choice? Or is it going to be forced on us because we refused to follow the need of awareness so that we start doing the right things? Mm. So interesting. Um, and I love that you are a masculine man who you know, has more feminine energy and you're comfortable talking about it and you appreciate it and you lean into it. I think it's really beautiful. It's the and best it thing I've shows ever done. your self-confidence as well. Because I think a lot of men... Um, especially straight men, they're a little bit scared to Secure. talk about their feelings, yeah. to like really go into their feminine energy. So I think it's really beautiful and inspiring. I did, I did that very deliberately. Yeah? So I, I, you know, I, I don't know if people will understand this, but I, I, I lived my entire life with one single objective, which I, I, I set when I was 16, which is to find a connection to the divine. Okay? I believe that we are spiritual beings before we are physical beings. And that this physical journey is all about connecting to your spiritual side. And I was, it was uh, around 2015, if I remember correctly, where I woke up one morning, and I have a very, very capable left brain, right? you know. I can tell. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I've, I've used it for many years, yeah. trained it very strongly. <laughs> and, and I woke up one morning, and I promise you this is, this is true. I was at Google X still at the time. And I heard my left brain tell me, that's it. That's as far as I can take you, okay? And I had to take the day off. I was like, what the F are you talking about? Like, no, 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 you can't quit on me now, right? But I sat down and I realized that if my journey is around connecting to the non-physical, then that journey is not going to be realized in the masculine. And not at Google X either. And, and, not, at, and yeah. not in this entire hyper uh, um, um, productivity-based, um, mm. GDP-based right. uh, world, right? Interestingly, I became, I used like I always do, I used my left brain first to try and discover my uh, feminine side, which I believe lots of the feminine attributes are in the right brain. Not, mm -hmm. not accurate from mm -hmm. a neuroscience point of view, but many of them are in your limbic system and in your, in your right brain. Now, interestingly, I started with flow. So you were saying about the pilgrimage. I, I found that the entry into the feminine, the fem the fem two of the top feminine qualities are flow and playfulness. Okay, uh, you know, without the feminine, humanity would be so boring. It would, be, it would kill all of us. Okay? When you say flow, do you mean like receiving, or what do you mean yeah. exactly? So, so flow, flow, a picture that we're both. 
I am a very masculine man and you are a very feminine woman. We are in, on, in two white water rafts on top of a river, okay? Mm -hmm. The masculine would look at the river and say, oh, here is a safe spot and start to battle the river, okay? To try to get to that spot. That's the masculine, right? The feminine will say, okay, obviously I cannot battle the river. I'm just going to make sure that I am balanced on top of the river so that I don't end up in a dangerous place, mm. okay? So I have one stroke here and one stroke there, and you're flowing with the flow of the river. Now, which of them is stronger, right? Your own muscles or the mighty power of the river itself. Now, yeah. the feminine plugs into that flow, plugs into the river itself, the river of life itself. That's what the feminine does. And so when you start to, to, to connect to that flow, hmm, mm. you have to trust that the river is not going to, uh, it doesn't want to trick you, that life actually has a plan for you. Hmm? So it's kind of like letting go, relaxing, totally. and just not being a control freak. <laughs> not, not, being a, not, not attempting to control what can't be controlled, yeah. right? Control. I'm having a lot of epiphanies right now. <laughs> like, oh about my God. Your, yeah. About your CEO years, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, uh, the, 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 do you the, do therapy too? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I work for coffee, Mona. So you can. <laughs> <Done>. <laughs> so so the, idea, the idea simply is if you can let that flow. Hmm? And, and now, again, my, my masculine brain starts to object. So I said to my masculine brain, as I always did, give me data. And I'll tell you this. Every event in your life that's ever shaped your life and made you the person that you are successful as you are today wasn't planned, wasn't controlled. The reason you and I are sitting here to talk hmm, is not because one, one morning I woke up and I said, okay, I'm going to leave Google and write a book about happiness. The reason we are here is because Ali left our world, right? Totally out of control. The reason why I went to Google X was a total stroke of luck, or to Google in general, mm -hmm. was a total stroke of luck, an event that I did not predict, but I accepted to flow with. Mm -hmm. And I dare every single one of our listeners openly to look back at their life and define the pivotal events, the person that you fell in love with, okay? Uh, did you plan it and draw a plan and say, I'm going to meet them this way? Or kind of. <laughs> there, okay, there you go. Control freak you. <laughs> but but what, what if they, you know, what if they didn't actually, huh. uh, um, you know, um, respond to you? Right. right. Most of the events, most of the events that shape our life are given to us by, by life, mm. not by us. Okay. We, when you're in them, you respond to them mm, with control. So yes, when I went to Google, I worked my backside off to have a career. But going to Google was an absolute stroke of luck. Absolute stroke of luck. I had just promoted my head of Eastern Europe and Microsoft. I had just promoted him to a job in Germany where he wanted to be because he just had a child. And I promise you, I was telling him the news when his phone rang. He picks up the phone. It's a headhunter telling him about Google. So I can hear Florian saying, Oh, no, 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 no. I'm very happy with what I have right now, but I have the right person for you. And he, oh, hands, wow. he hands over the phone to me and I'm like, who is this? And, she, and he says, someone wants a head of Google Emerging Markets. Wow. I was like, okay, <laughs> right? That, those strokes of luck, they define our mm. life. How do you find them? In an aimless pilgrimage, okay? An aimless pilgrimage that basically is not about traveling from point A to point B aimlessly. It's about flowing through life. And just being open to... Just being open to what life is telling you. Mm. That's hard for me. Yes. 
I struggle with that. You need to, <laughs> yes, you need need to, to buy me coffee. We need to have a longer conversation <laughs> about that. But um, I feel like it's a challenge, you know, like there's a challenge between being a person who, and I wanted to get into this with you because I, I love how you, you make happiness simple and you always talk about it, just changing your expectations, kind of accepting the moment, being present. But I wanted to ask, like, as an overachiever, which you definitely are, you know, how do you balance being an overachiever, having high expectations, being hungry and motivated and still being happy? Because I feel like Best it's a battle. Ever. Like for me personally, it's a big battle. Like every time I kind of like get a little bit chillaxed, I actually feel like my standards go lower and then I get mad at myself and it's like I fight with myself and I'm like, no, you need to be more hungry, more obsessed. And then I, I feel like my happiness goes away, yes. but I'm more driven. So yeah. it's like, how do you stay driven, stay hungry? have high standards, but still keep your happiness. Best question ever. Now, let's start for those who don't understand that bit by saying what the happiness equation is. So my entire happiness work is based on a mathematical algorithm that basically says your happiness is equal to or greater than the difference between the events of your life and your expectations of how life should be. That every moment in our life, we compare the event with what it gives us to our expectations of how we wish life would have been Okay, And if the event falls short of our expectations, we're unhappy. Mm. If the event meets our expectations, we're happy. This is the way the machine, the happiness machine works. But do they ever meet expectations? Great question. Honestly, Mona? Because for me, it never does. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, Mona, this moment in time for me mm. absolutely meets my expectations. Really? Yeah. You're wonderful. The team's amazing. Aww. The place is, is so calm and quiet. Having a wonderful conversation. Right? Okay, well, yeah, this moment, mm -hmm. definitely. So maybe I'm living in the future right now. There you go, masculine okay. again. Oh. Right? So, so te temporal, our temporal engine is in the left side of the brain, right? Our temporal engine is okay. masculine, okay? Mm. Without being, being, the feminine side, being mm. is right here, right now. Mm. Now, interesting, because honestly, there is a difference between expectations and mm. ambitions, Okay. So I, my mission in life is one billion happy. One billion happy is a big target. Like how many people reach the billion people, right? Having said that, it's my ambition. It's mm. not my target. Mm. If it was my target, then, you know, if you ask me to, to have coffee and talk about something that's making you unhappy as my friend, I'd say that's not worth my time. I need to get to uh, at least a million people today or, you know, um, it's, it's, not, it's not worth it for me one person at a time. Mm -hmm. Having said that, hmm? uh, once again, Ali taught me this, but I'll tell you how in a minute. That having said that, the interesting approach to this is uh, confused by the concept of life purpose. Okay? In the West, like we do, or if you're Western educated, and it doesn't matter where you're from, what we do is we productized everything. We've, we've turned everything into a moment in the future, temp you know, temporally, uh, uh, um, judged by this day, that time, I will have bought this or I will have achieved that or I will have married this or whatever, okay? All of those moments in the future are moments where you're unhappy until you reach them, right? Because you're dissatisfied that you haven't done it yet. Mm -hmm. And then when you reach them, what happens? You set another moment. So it's a recipe for constant unhappiness. I feel like that's where I'm living right now. Okay. <laughs> I'm right. like, I have so many goals and I'm always just trying to like look ahead and plan and advance. And I'm always just trying to compare the difference between where I, where I wanted to be and where I am. And it's just like, I feel like I overanalyze everything. It's amazing. But I'm still content. 
but I don't know if I'm joyful. Yeah, and, and it's amazing because you're so successful already. Oh, I don't feel that way. <laughs> exactly, exactly. If, if Think about the 20-year-old you that graduated from university, if you told her that her life would be like now. What, what would she say? She would say she would consider that massive success. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> right? And, and that's the idea. Yeah. The, the idea is when, when we allow ourselves to chase a target, mm-hmm. the minute we achieve the target, we set another one. Yeah. And I always, I always say, forget about me or about you, Mona, everyone listening to us. Remember when you finished school and you said, if I get $100 a week, I'll be very happy. You got $100, what did you do? You said, oh, no, no, I meant 200 right? And then when you got 200 you, you bought a mortgage, and then you said, I need 500 mm-hmm. right? The goal posts always move. That's, that's the truth. That's the Western purpose. The Western purpose, whether it's money or anything else, is one billion happy, right? Mm-hmm. Target in the future. Mm-hmm. The Eastern reality, the way us in, you know, Islam, Sufism, Hinduism, uh, uh, Buddhism, Taoism, and so on and so forth. In the East, we're taught by society and by tradition and by spirituality that life is here and now. All of life is here and now, okay? That the future doesn't exist. It never existed because when tomorrow happens, you're going to call it today, okay? That the past never existed because when yesterday happened, you were calling it today. That's understood, huh? All of life is here and now. Now, If you can do the best that you can here and now, hmm, that gives you access to the maximum potential for the future that you're dreaming of to happen. True. Right? So if if I am now thinking about, I need this talk to reach a million people and uh, I want 4,000 of them to call me and say, oh, that was amazing, Mo, thank you very much. Right? All of this dream and, and, and plan in my head translates into one thing, okay? Whether it's a million people or half a million people or four million people, it doesn't matter. It translates into one thing. Do the absolute best you can. Mm-hmm. Connect to Mona's uh, uh, logic and to her heart and, and try to, to say the best that you can from your heart. By doing the best that I can, I'm maximizing the potential of my ambitions, but I'm also removing the stress that comes from that future, you know, future-centric approach to life that is dedicated to, dictated to us by the West. Right? So, so for me, I differentiate between the two, between my ambitions, one billion happy, and my expectations, okay? And my expectations are, if I do the best I can today, I will touch as many hearts as I can today. And that's it. Tomorrow will take care of itself. If I do the best that I can today, hmm, tomorrow more people will come. And mm-hmm. Ali, as I told you, taught me that. So he, he, he showed me... Um, a documentary on Netflix. He, he always, he was so unbelievable. He was 14, 15, 16, I don't remember. And he would sit me next to him, and say, Papa, Papa, I want you to watch this. And I'm like, sure, Habib, yeah, I love to spend time with him. So I sit down. He, he told me uh, to watch a documentary called Gyro's something about a, a, a sushi chef. I think I saw that. Yeah. yeah. Ja- yeah, some ja- Jairo wants to make sushi or something some, like yeah. that. Yeah. Okay, and, and he's like one of the most famous sushi chefs in Japan. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing, basically, after it, Ali sits down and says, did you hear how he did it? In his very calm voice. And I, and I was like, yeah, he's like the best chef out there. And he said, yeah, but he had to pan the rice for a few years. And then he had to uh, clean the dishes for a few years. And when he was good at cleaning the dishes, they allowed him to put the, the plates on the table for the customers and mm-hmm. so on, 
right? And the truth is, we as humans, we, rec- we don't recognize that. That if I had given you the responsibilities you have today, when you were 20... I would have died. <laughs> you would, absolutely, you would have died and you would have messed it up away. completely, right? Yeah, definitely. And, and, and the reason why you can deal with all of those today is what? Is because over time you fanned the rice, you did the best that you can, and then you that. were promoted, and then you managed to deal with the clients and you did the best that you can, and then they asked you to roll the first roll of sushi and you did the best that you can. So it seems to me that logically the answer to all ambition is do the best that you can. It doesn't matter what that ambition is. Just wake up. So, you know, basically ambition is directional to me. One billion happy, not one billion fed, which is also a wonderful target. By the way, I have friends, you know, and, and, and people I know that work on this. Tony Robbins, for example, has, has put in a big target of, I think, uh, uh, 10, billion, 10 billion meals or 100 billion meals. I don't remember, right? Not, not my target. My target is one billion happy. So I will wake up in the morning and I will focus on happy, and I will invest all of my time on happy, and I will write all of my books around happy, and I will, you know, have a conversation around happy, and, and you know, feminine and masculine affects happy, so I'm going to study feminine and masculine. I'm not going to study world hunger, right? So my ambition is direction. I feel okay? like if you focus on happiness, it'll also help solve hunger, because people, happier Hopefully. people help more people. And there you go. Want to Ho- be better to people in the world. Hopefully, but, but it's not my, my call. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm a serious advocate for action on climate change, but it's not my call. I host mm-hmm. people on my podcast that talk about it. I, I study it and understand it, but mo- every minute of my effort here and now is around happiness, uh, you know, around happiness, around stress, around relationships and so on and so forth. So when, when you do that, life works out. You wake up every morning and you go like, okay, what do I have to do today? I have to do exactly the same thing I did yesterday which is to do the absolute best thing I can around that topic that I have an ambition around. Mm. Now, that's one side. Now, the other side, which I have to admit um, is extremely important, is how we stress ourselves with things that don't matter. So, unstressable. Hmm? Uh, I can't wait for that book. <laughs> that, <laughs> the, this book is my actually life. my favorite book so far. Oh, wow. Right? Uh, and, and unstressable basically says... That, so, so I use analogies to physics to explain, mm-hmm. uh, to explain stress because it becomes so clear when you see it. Hmm? Mm-hmm. Stress in itself is not a bad thing. Stress actually makes you superhuman. If it's for a few seconds, a few hours, it's okay. Mm-hmm. It makes you focus. It makes you do the right things. What's, what, what, what kills us is either trauma, which is high st- amounts of stress in a short period of time. I'll come back to that in a second. Or burnout, right? Burnout is repetitive stress regardless of how traumatic it is. Trauma, interestingly, uh, uh, is, um, you know, the equation basically is a level of challenge of force applied to you that exceeds your ability at that moment in time. Uh, you exceeds your ability to handle it at that moment in time. But statistics will show you that 91% of all humans will actually have one traumatic event in their life that is PTSD, one or more, okay? PTSD worthy, like losing a loved one or being caught in a war or an accident or whatever, okay? But interestingly, 96.8%, almost 97 of every 100 people will recover within three months. Trauma doesn't kill us, okay? As a matter of fact, up to 99.2% of everyone will recover within a year or two, right? Only 0.8%, like say one in every 100 that gets through a traumatic event actually lost a lifetime of trauma, right? Interesting. So it's not the one that we 
if, of course, it's important to work with the 1%, yeah. okay? But if we want to work on the 99, what breaks the 99, interestingly, is burnout, okay? And burn, burnout is a very simple equation. You burn out when the number of stressors in your life multiplied by the intensity of each stressor, multiplied by the time of application, multiplied by the repetition, okay? So how many stressors do you allow in your life, how many times and how hard they are, okay? And how, do you how long do you let them linger? If those exceed your ability to deal with them, you burn out, right? And so this is why you find that people burn out suddenly out of nothing at all. If you find that you blow up in your partner's face, okay, just because he dropped a fork. When dropping a fork normally doesn't, doesn't really stress us, mm. okay? But it's that one thing that's adding to all of those stressors, mm. okay, that breaks us. How do you become stronger so you can handle more? And how do you avoid burnout or solve burnout if you just have way too much going on? Because I feel like some people, yes. they need to become stronger because yes. like anything will make them burn out. And then other people, maybe they just have too much. Like how do you control yes. the amount of stress Beautiful. you're having in your life and change your mindset yeah, to kind is, of like- This is a CEO-like question. <laughs> it's, like, it's like basically, okay, I, I, get, I get the algorithm. <laughs> Let's just make it work. One of them I'm is- I'm asking in, for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> one of them is in the, in the masculine and the other is in the feminine, okay. right? So- the two sides of the equation is increase your ability because if you increase your ability, you can handle you more that? stress, right? Skills. So, so the, the idea is, you know, every, every ability in the world is a matter of where your natural skills are, additional knowledge and learning, mm. and additional practice. It's as simple as that, right? If I told you increase your ability to run a marathon, you see where your ability to run a marathon is right now. It could be I can run five meters, okay? And what I do that in the gym all the time. Mm. My, my way of working out in the gym is I get on a treadmill or a cross trainer or whatever, and I do as much as I, my body is able to do today, seven mm. minutes, let's say, okay? Tomorrow, I will do two more. After tomorrow, I'll try to do nine. You know, so tomorrow I'll do nine. Yeah. After tomorrow, I'll do 11. After tomorrow, I'll do 13 every mm. time. Maybe five days from now, I'm not going to be able to meet the target and I'll find myself doing 12 minutes. The, four, the day after, I'll do 14. The day after, I'll do 16 and so on. It's just constant practice with reasonable expectations. Repetition is what builds our neuroplasticity so that you become better at something. Now, this is why the first time someone walked into your office and said, you know, the client returned the products, you panicked, okay? The, set, the fourth time, you said, okay, I know what to do. So the same event with the same intensity doesn't uh, uh, stress you anymore because you've practiced it. Right? How can you practice? Like, say people are trying to relate this to like their personal problems in life, like yeah. their parents fighting, um, you know, breakups, things like that. Like, how do you get better at dealing with things like that that are yes. not as easy to kind of practice like a business problem? Like, so so let, let, let's, can I come back to that yeah, in a sure, second? Huh? So let's keep that. Practice mm -hmm. will make you better at handling stress. Mm -hmm. But why would you practice handling a noisy alarm in the morning, right? There are so many stressors in our life that don't need to be there at all. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, so the, the left-hand side of the equation is, you know, number of stressors multiplied by intensity of stress of each of them, multiplied mm -hmm. by frequency, multiplied by time of application. Mm -hmm. That is a lot of that is within our control. Yeah. Right. So I, for example, will not drive in the morning at the time where there are traffic jams. I have the luxury of doing that, even though I could tell myself, yeah, accept a 9 a.m. meeting mm -hmm. and, and be there. No, I tell myself openly, 
if someone wants to meet me, it's going to be at 11. Mm. One side of it is I love, I love to write in the morning. Mm-hmm. The other is I'm going to remove that stressor of my, out of my life. Yeah. Now, people will say, oh, but you have the luxury. You've been chief business officer of Google X. Yes, I do. But you, too, have numerous luxuries that you're not exercising. For example, take just the, the normal routine of when we wake up in the morning. Hmm? We wake up with not enough sleep because we slept late. So we have to set an alarm. The alarm is extremely aggressive, so it jolts you out of bed. But you don't actually wake up. You snooze it five times, so you're jolted out of bed five times. Okay. The minute you wake up, you hold your phone and you look at the news and it's negative. Then you look at your email and it pisses you off. Then you look at social media and you didn't get enough likes. Then you, uh, uh, you know, you you look at your agenda and you realize that life is horrible. Okay. Then <laughs> like we all relate. <laughs> everybody, everyone knows this, right? And then are you, you are you spying on me? <laughs> <laughs> what is this? <laughs> no, just a guess, basically, right? And the, and then what do you do? Huh? Mm. By the time you haven't even gone out of bed. Mm-hmm. And by the way, there was a little bit of a pain in your shoulder because mm-hmm. you, may, you may didn't sleep enough and you didn't yeah. sleep very well. You haven't even gone out of your bed mm-hmm. and you had already 12, 13 shots of stress. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know how I wake up? How? Okay. I, I set an alarm nine hours from the time I, I go to bed. Okay. Right? Is it typically the same time every night? Or it oh, just if, I, if I have an appointment at 11, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, I will want to wake up at 9. Mm-hmm. That means I will sleep at or before midnight. That allows me 9 hours before the alarm goes off. Mm-hmm. So most of the time, most of the time, the alarm will never go off. Mm-hmm. Okay? My alarm is literally almost like a tickling, beautiful meditation sound that ends up with a boom. Oh, that's so nice. Right? <laughs> and it takes its time to build. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And literally, it's not like... Bah! You know, yeah. those standard, the standard alarms that you have on your phone. Yeah. I choose a meditation music, okay? I have and, a song also, yeah, but right? it, mine is like, turn up. Like, it's like, <laughs> that's, and that's also beautiful. That. That's also beautiful. I did that too because the alarm used to drive me crazy. Uh, uh, yeah, and that's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful because then you wake up in the right mood, okay? Mm-hmm. I then wake up. Hmm? I stretch before I go out of bed. That's I think great. beautiful thoughts, mm-hmm. Okay. By the way, before I go to bed, I watched comedy. So, so I actually am in a very good mood. Waking I saw up. that Michael, Michael McIntyre, or yeah, yeah. Dave Chappelle, or nice. whoever, right? Then, then I, then I actually would go uh, wake up, mm-hmm. hmm? and believe it or not, I have my meditation, but I also have my coffee meditation, which is quite interesting. It What's takes that? me around five minutes to find out which coffee I will make today. Okay, because not every coffee is the same for coffee lovers. There are times when you want an iced coffee and to sit, you know, somewhere uh, and sip it slowly. Other times where you want a milky, creamy uh, latte or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you want a double shot of espresso because you're a little, mm, <laughs> right? Whatever that is. And and to me, the exercise of finding out what my body is actually calling for is as an act of meditation. Mm-hmm. I would then stand in front of my coffee machine and take a good five minutes to make that coffee. There's no rush. Okay. I taste it, I try it. If it's not great, I try another one. Hmm? And none of that has anything to do with coffee. This is a very important signal for myself that I'm worthy of that care and attention. I love that. And also like taking the time, not rushing yourself. Not rushing myself. And making decisions because I feel like when we're just on repeat, which is my life most of the time, I'm not even thinking what I want. Totally. It is what it is. It's there. And and I told you, if my appointment is at 11, I wake up at 9, not at 10, not Mm -hmm. at Mm 10.30, because my first hour of the day is my hour of the day. Mm -hmm. It's mine. Okay? So I basically have my coffee very slowly. I, you know, sit sit and think about the day. 
I think about yesterday and what happened yesterday and the kind words that you told me today, I, whatever, right? And then I meditate. I have exercises, that, you know, different exercises mm -hmm. of meditation, sometimes to encourage my thinking, sometimes to calm it down. And then an hour later, an hour later, I'll hold my phone hmm, and look for urgent messages only or, 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 or um, supportive, encouraging messages. So if I know that someone is going to send me an angry message or an annoying message, I won't Archive open them. it. <laughs> yeah, I won't open it. But I'll open the ones yeah. that I know will say, hey, Mo, I miss you. Lovely, I'll open those. Half an hour later, okay, now I'm heading out of my apartment because I have an 11 o'clock appointment. I will look at my phone very quickly to make sure that nothing is wrong. That practice is my choice. It's my choice. It's removing all of those micro stressors from our life hmm, before stress kills us. Mm. Now, every single one of those micro stressors, whether you're a CEO, whether you're a, you know, an accountant in a company, whatever it is that you do, you do with your life, okay, every one of those micro stressors deserves that you sit down and list them and say, why do I have this in my life? Why do I have this annoying friend? Why do I have this, you know, a person that I'm following on Instagram that's not making me feel good? Mm. Why do I have this? Why do I have that? Remove them. And when you remove them, you've taken a lot of the stressors out before you develop the skill. Step one is remove them. We, we call it the limit part of, uh, the, the model of unstressable is called limit, learn, and listen. Okay. Limit is to, is to remove or reduce the intensity of every stressor that's unnecessary in your life. Okay? What if you feel like you don't even know what it is? You're just that's constantly it. stressed. That's, like you have to study yourself that's for the a day. Feminine. Like, that's the feminine. Oh. Spend Saturday morning sitting down with yourself and saying, what's stressing you? Oh, every time Michael texts me, I feel like I'm going to collapse. Good. Michael is stressing me. Okay? What's stressing me? Being stuck in traffic stresses me. Interesting. What's stressing me? My back. My back's been hurting for so long. Interesting. Write it down. Mm. Write it down. So just like make a list of make all of the things. Make a whole list of them. I like lists. Yeah, lists are amazing, <laughs> right? And then yeah. ask yourself, which of those can I remove? Which of those can I reduce? Which of those can I delegate? Okay? What if you can't do either? Then I have to deal with them. And dealing with life, hmm, that's the interesting bit. Because dealing with life is in different ways. One of them is to beat the problem. And the other is to accept it. How do you accept it? I, like say I, you have a really challenging like situation in your life or a person in your life that you just really can't realistically remove. Say it's a parent or something like that. You know, what do you do in that situation? Because in, uh, in that little voice in your head, I think... One of the biggest I parts. I really want to read that book so it's, badly because I have so many voices in my head. <laughs> <We> <laughs> like, how do. do you turn them <laughs> off? <laughs> we, all, we all do. And it's actually, they are very turnable off, but that's not what we want. We want them to be positive. Imagine okay. if you have all of those voices in your head constantly encouraging you and saying, oh, Mona, you're so wonderful. I'd like that. I'd like that too, right? <laughs> right? So I don't want yeah. them to say Mona. That would be quite, uh, <laughs> right? But, but, but th this is the trick. The trick is... Hmm, can we take uh, um, uh, you know, a situation mm, mm. and basically look at it objectively? So I call it the happiness flow chart. The happiness flow chart, of course, start to, starts with acknowledging what you feel, the emotions. Mm. Start with accepting that the what emotions do you, are real. What do you recommend for someone to do just like, this is like emotions for dummies. Yeah. Like me. <laughs> I literally, 
because I had to go through this. I, I was so disconnected from my emotions at one point that I didn't even feel like I knew what I felt yeah. most of the time. So like, what do you recommend to someone who's watching who maybe doesn't have access to therapy? Like, how do you even know what you're feeling? That's an incredible question, by the way. So, so do you know that moment where you feel that your throat is a little itchy, that mm -hmm. you're about to catch a cold, mm -hmm. right? And, and once you get that feeling, you go like, hold on, something doesn't feel right. Right. Right? Something doesn't feel right is literally and typically a signal for us, our bodies, our minds, our hearts, that we need to intervene, right? That it's not good it for like us. Is it like a gut feeling? Yes. And, and every single emotion, if you pay attention, has a physical signature. Mm -hmm. If you're worried, it's here. Mm -hmm. If you're excited, it's all, of, all over your body. If you're afraid, it's, you know, you, you feel that your body's shrinking, pulling, shrinking, mm -hmm. pulling back, right? And, and it's actually easy when you've, when, when you tune yourself, so I'm, you know, I've been working on me so long hmm, that I feel hmm, those physical signatures and I know which emotion they're leading mm -hmm. to. But here's the problem. The problem is you never actually feel only afraid. You can be afraid, anxious. You can be at the same time in love and have a constipation, right? <laughs> and, right? And, and, and so all of these are blended in ways which are very, very difficult for you to recognize mm -hmm. and, and parse out. So the answer is very straightforward. The answer is, this is what I do with my uh, uh, seclusion, with my retreats. Hmm? The answer is, give yourself a day hmm, where you can get yourself to a neutral place. A day with no stress, with no arguments, with no uh, uh, you know, news, with nothing that stresses you, just a day of relaxation. Maybe allow yourself to rest if you can afford it, have a massage, spend time with someone that you know is going to make you happy, and, and, and find out how you feel at the end of that day. Right? How you feel at the end of the day is your, is your baseline. This is me when I feel good. Right? Any deviation from that is related to an emotion, directly. Okay? You absolutely have to tell yourself, if I'm not feeling that the best of me, it's like an itch in my throat. It's not my best. And once you can recognize and parse those out, you start to acknowledge when you feel those emotions. I'm, I am anxious. I'm angry. I'm worried. I'm... Right? And, and I, I ask people, and this is part of my morning meditation, when I told you I wake up in the morning and I, and I spend an hour and a bit doing absolutely nothing but connecting to me, part of, the, of that connection is, how do I feel today? Like every human, some days I will wake up pissed off, right? Do you journal or do you just... I allow myself a paper and a pen all the time, okay. right? And it's up to you, your style. Mm -hmm. But yes, of course, if you, if you, if you allow yourself to, to write it down, I do an exercise that I call Meet Becky, which is one of my absolute favorite and Becky's meditations. Becky's your brain. Be Becky's my brain. Yes. So <laughs> I, I treat my brain as a third party, which it is, by the way. Okay. We need and to talk more about that because that's really fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's the key. The first step to happiness mm -hmm. is to recognize that the voice in your head telling you what to do and criticizing you is not you. Who is it? It's a brain. It's a biological oh function. Okay? But then who am I? Oh, that's a bigger question. So, so let's let's take let's take the, the two the two levels. Huh? The 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 brain is a biological function. It's mm -hmm. literally like your heart is pumping blood around your body. Mm -hmm. You don't say, "I pump blood, therefore I am." Okay, your kidneys take the poisons out of your body in the form of urine. You then you don't say, "I go pee, pee therefore I am." You, we don't associate ourselves with the blood mm -hmm. or with the urine. That is the biological product of those. Mm -hmm of those uh, uh, organs, okay? 
your brain is connected to all, I mean, in computer science terms, it is the processor that's connected to all of those sensors, your touch, your sight, your, your hearing, just to, to process the world around you and give you information about that, how that environment is so that you can engage with it and stay safe, right? That brain is communicating to you in the, mostly at the, at the, at the conscious level or, you know, at the interior, in, internal dialogue level in the, in the form of words, okay? Because when we start to learn language, that becomes our building block of knowledge, right? Those words that the brain is telling you are the words that you use to understand the world. That's the function of your brain. Nothing more, nothing less, okay? We think about it and we go like, oh, this is me talking to me. If it was you talking to you, what, why would it need to talk? Hmm. Do, do you understand that? If it's, you, you, if it's you wanting to tell you something, you would know it in, before you, you say it, hmm. okay? So who is you? Who's that yeah, you? Yeah, exactly. Who right? am I then? Like, yeah. so, and, so, and do I have a voice? And then is this is who I'm speaking right now? Is that my brain, or is it me? Like, so every just... every pro, every thought that you get in your head is your mind, your brain processing the world around you and inside you. Mm. Okay, inside your physical form. Mm -hmm. Who are you? You're not the physical form. You're the consciousness behind that physical form. You're mm -hmm. the spirit that's animating. And, and controlling the avatar, mm. right? The real you is not here at all. Doesn't give a damn about here, believe it or not. Mm? The real you is watching this incredible experience of learning and explore, exploration and connection and love and, 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 and fragility and just looking at all of it and smiling and go like, going like, oh, if you only knew the truth, you would put the controller down and never care about the video game. Okay? Now, having it's said super that, deep. But, but that's the truth. Mm. The truth is, hmm, really, honestly, hmm, there are joys in our life that are felt in the physical form. Hmm? I'm going to say this, and I, I don't know how people will receive it. Hmm? Yay, that, I love things like this. <laughs> that, that are better, yeah. better hmm, when they're not physical. Mm. You know, when you fantasize about your partner or husband, hmm, it's very frequently better than having him there. Okay? That's the truth. Hmm? Our, our non-physical existence hmm, is so beautifully non-physical. Okay? Interesting. Everything, I know this will, will be a little too deep. Everything, in, it, so. everything, in, everything in this physical form hmm. is just electrical and chemical signals. Okay? That you could actually, we do in science when I ran Google X, you could simulate them without the event. You know, we, we had uh, uh, um, um, scanners, basically, that you connect to your arm and it will measure the electrical signals that you need to do to, to, to hold, you know, to close your fist. Mm. And then we would apply them on an arm and the, the fist will close, right? I could simulate the sensation of you touching wool or touching silk. I could simulate the joy of an orgasm, okay? It's all electrical signals, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, those electrical signals in the body hmm, are experiences of the physical world mm -hmm. hmm, that are felt by your physical processor that's called a mind, a brain. Mm -hmm. okay? There is a, a whole other existence to you that's aware and conscious of all of this. People who have had near-death experiences, for example, which are in the millions, there are more than three million documented near-death experiences. People who died clinically and wow. then came back to life, right? 
they'll tell you suddenly you realize that this is all a joke. Wow. That 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 that, that you, the real you, the real consciousness of you, hmm, is in full tranquility. Okay. You know, most of those. That, one of my favorite favorite authors on the topic is Anita Morjani, uh, who wrote "Dying to Be Me" was the name of the book. Mm. Okay. Who has who, who was diagnosed with a um, level four um, cancer. Okay. And and basically was clinically dead, completely wow. on on the bed in the hospital, and her consciousness floated on top of her body as she watched the panic of mm. the of the paramedics and the doctors and and the family crying and all, and she was super calm and quiet, right? And basically, you know that your non-physical side is not concerned with any of this; it just doesn't, you know. It's it's a very interesting. Um, um, other form of being, if you think about it. I had a, a near-death experience myself. What happened? I, I, had a, I was going through a, a, a simple surgery, and I think some nerve was touched or something. So I basically clinically died for around wow. four minutes. Right? Wow. And, and I will tell you openly, when they brought me back, I was so angry at them. I was like, why? <laughs> like th- this <laughs> was so beautiful. Like it's the best mm. existence I've ever had. Yeah. Now, now this other side of us, hmm, that the one that's not concerned with all of the of the of the issues we have here in the in the physical world, mm. that other side of us is constantly in tranquility and peace. Doesn't care if you your 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 husband said something annoying or your boss is you know um, um, uh, threatening with this or that. It's just part of the video game. Mm. It's part of the video game. Now. Your, you know, when we, when we were talking about this, we were talking about it to say, so how do I find that calm and tranquility in this life? And I say there is, you know, there, as I said, from the minute you feel a feeling, you feel an emotion, like just like your sore, sore throat, you tell yourself, okay, something's not right. I'm a little angry. Hmm? And you ask yourself three questions. It's really as simple as that. Huh? I'm a little angry. Why, are, why am I a little angry? I'm a, I'm a little angry at my... Uh, you know, at my uh, um, uh, daughter. I'm, I'm never angry at my daughter. I love her very, very much, right? Uh, I'm a little angry at my daughter. Uh, or I'm a little angry at the situation I had with my daughter. She, mm-hmm. you know, she, we, we argued and she said that, you know, and I feel that she doesn't love me anymore. Take that situation. I feel that she doesn't love me anymore, okay? Once you get that, you, you get the feeling I'm angry or I'm worried or I'm scared or whatever, you get the trigger, she doesn't love me anymore, you ask yourself three questions. Question number one is, is that true? Okay, I told you, your brain never told you the truth. It tells you its perception of the truth. Is it true that my daughter doesn't love me anymore? And, and I, it happened to me. Huh? I was arguing with Aya, she was living in Montreal at the time, and I said, baby, look, this is just too much. I'm going to go out, have a coffee, and come back and we talk about it. The minute I walk out of her building, my brain says, she doesn't love you anymore. And I promise you, I'm not making this up. I stopped in the middle of the street in Montreal, and I out loud, out loud, I spoke it out loud. I said, what the F did you just say? Oh my God. Okay. I, I do not accept my brain uh, 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 manipulating. me. I said, what evidence do you have for this? What evidence do you have that she doesn't love me anymore? Mm. Okay. I have messages on, uh, on WhatsApp that are full of hearts and kisses. I have the fact that she invited me to breakfast this morning, okay, and made me breakfast and hugged me as I walked in and that most of the conversation we were having a wonderful time where she several times repeated that she loved me. What evidence do you have, brain? Mm. 
okay? And my brain shut up. Immediately <laughs> said, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I was just, you know, a little worried, right? And if the answer is, to, is it true? No. Then why are you unhappy about it? Mm. Right? You've never actually been unhappy about the event. You would have an argument with your partner and your, your brain is making up a story. So is it true? 99% of the time you'll, you'll find out, oh, it isn't. And what about the 1%? You ask yourself question number two. Yeah. And question number two is what can I do about it? Mm. Okay. So a lot of people now are saying, uh, you know, uh, we uh, um, there is an economic crisis up, upon us. Okay. Can is there anything you can do to fix it? Not really. Right? <laughs> if there is, do not it. individually, but yeah, maybe exactly. For your own personal there, finances. So so, can... so so by the way, is it true? don't really know. All future statements are not true, just so that you know, mm -hmm. okay? Right. They are predictions at best. Mm -hmm. uh, your, your brain will say, there is an economic crisis upon us, okay? And my company will shut down as a result, mm -hmm. right? The economic crisis upon us, you can't do anything about it, but my company will shut down as a result. Can you do something about that? Can you reduce expenses? Can you cancel a couple of product lines? Can you increase marketing? Can you, can you do something about it? Mm -hmm right? Your partner said something harsh on Friday, right? And, you know, your brain first says he doesn't love you. Is it true? No. Uh, but he did say something harsh. It is true. What can you do about it? Can you text them and say, hey, baby, what you said on Friday hurt me, right? If there is something you can do about it, do it. That, that from one side will improve your world, right? From the other side, will take the unhappiness away because we don't do two things at the same time. For you to be unhappy, you have to sit in a corner and do nothing, okay? If you actually start to do something, the unhappiness goes away. You focus, your, the parts of your brain that are interested in execution are different than the parts that wonder and speak and complain, okay? So if you start to do something, you stop complaining. Okay? What about people who are stuck in a rut? Because I know personally, yeah? and I've had my own experience of like getting in a rut and it's so hard to get yourself out, but also from a lot of my friends and people I know who go through depression, you know, sometimes it's just so hard to even take that first step to start doing yeah, the Yeah, depression work. is a different thing. I, 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 sh I should cover that, you know, separately. Mm -hmm. but, but, but the same method applies. Is it true? Can I do something to fix it? If mm -hmm. there is, do it, okay? If there isn't, by the way, can I accept and do something to make my life better despite its presence, mm -hmm. right? So, if, you know, I cannot fix the economic problem, but I can fix things about my life that would allow me to handle it better. Okay, I cannot bring Ali back, but I can do things about my life that makes my life without Ali a tiny bit better. Do you, do you understand? And, and, and that's really it. Is it true? Can I do something to fix it? Can I accept it and do something to make my life better despite its presence? Applies to every rot, other than depression. What do you recommend for people? I mean, it's, I know it's a big topic, but... What do you recommend for people who feel like they are in depression and they need just a way out? Like so I, I hosted on my podcast, uh, Ruby Wax. I don't know if you know Ruby. No. An amazing, amazing comedian, British mm. comedian, who is known to have had several uh, episodes of depression in her life mm. and who used comedy to actually teach about depression. Mm. And, and Ruby is an amazing woman. And, and I hosted her on Slow Mo and I basically said, Ruby, describe depression to me. And she said, it feels like someone cut your skull open and fills your entire body with concrete, okay? You're unable to think, you're unable to act, you're unable to move, you're unable to do anything. You're, 
entire functions are not mm. are not functioning and i and i know that for certain from my research because depression not only alters the way you think it alters the chemical makeup of your body in a way that accelerates the negative thoughts mm-hmm. okay now believe it or not if you manage to get a person who's depressed to ask the three questions they'll still be okay right they'll find out that what is depressing me is it true can I do something to fix it? Can I uh, uh, accept it and make life better with, with, in its presence, right? It, 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 the, the method will work. But most of the time you can't get them there because their chemical makeup doesn't want to answer those questions. And they're just like in a cycle. They're it's in like a, a cycle. Loop. Like yeah. I've noticed even times that I've been through situations where I'm not myself and I feel like it's harder to get me out of like things in my head. Yeah. It's because it's like it's on repeat. So it's like, I don't know if you need to have that printed out, the questions in front of you or what you need to do to just make it easier. Because I feel like psychologically, sometimes we can just get so obsessed. Uh, absolutely. Now, with things. now so, so there are there are two methods to, de- to, to dealing with depression, sadly. Uh, one is the uh, is the is the Western way, which is let's pump you up with medicines. Okay, mm-hmm. and the medicines will affect the chemical makeup of you, and then you go to a therapist, which will sit you down and just uh, you know ask you why are you depressed for around fourteen uh, sessions, mm-hmm. right? And there is interestingly the Eastern, and the Eastern way is more societal based. What what does that mean? I found in my work that the only thing that actually worked on people who were depressed is that they get human connections that will pour love on them which is quite an interesting one. So, so if, you, if you know someone who is in depression or, or unhappy, don't blame them for being depressed. Don't wish that they were different. Don't tell them, why are you that way? Don't try to explain that what they're thinking is wrong. They're not in that stage. Do one thing and one thing only, which is pour love on them. Love changes everything, mm-hmm. okay? So if, you, if you're able to go to someone who's feeling depressed and basically text them in the morning and say, hey, I had a coffee in that place that we used to go to together. You're so much fun. I miss you. I love you. Send. Okay. Then the next morning you would say, hey, I was wondering what you're doing. I hope you're doing amazing. I love you. You're amazing. Uh, text me when you can. Okay. Mm-hmm. No expectations, just constant love on them. If you, if you pour constant love on a, a person who is in depression, I promise you. Okay. Measure it and tell me if I'm wrong. Within 21 days, they'll come to you and say, why are you doing this? Why are you doing am, am I not supposed to be annoying you? Okay? Mm-hmm. And you say, yeah, you're annoying a little bit, but I love you very much. Mm-hmm. Okay? I want you to be better. Now, remember, when we get to those stages, two things happen. One thing is neuroplasticity works against us. So the thoughts that we think more often become stronger. right? But the other is, there is an interesting utility to sadness that most people don't recognize. When I'm sad, I give up my agency, so I don't have to do anything about it anymore, so I'm, I can be lazy and sad, it's okay, right? And when I'm sad, I get a couple of taps on the back, okay? Oh, I'm so sorry you're feeling this way. This is basically the, the behavior of a six-year-old, okay? Mm-hmm. It's like I'm going to scream, scream and, 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 you know, and, and get the attention of my parents by being unhappy, mm-hmm. okay? I think that's okay. But if we give them attention, if we give someone attention, and by the way, if you give yourself attention, if you're, uh, if you're complaining about something, okay, you give that yourself that attention in the form of, I love you even though you're annoying. Mm-hmm. 
I love you even though your annoying answers the question, okay? Uh, here's the, the other interesting bit. The other interesting bit that I normally do hmm, is I avoid the topic that's causing the depression altogether. So if someone tells you the government is not fair or the, you know, my, 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 my car is going to, to whatever, anything, anything that's making them unhappy, I talk about what is there to make them happy, mm. okay? I say, so what's good about this? Like, is it good to change your car or is it good that you're, uh, that you're smart enough to recognize the government behavior or is it good that, you know, even though you don't like the temperature in Dubai, you actually have a tax-free environment or, you know, whatever. It's There's funny because we usually do the opposite. Yeah, we engage like I, in that. In every the, time I know my friends are sad about something, I try to comfort them and I ask them about the situation. So it's probably making it worse. Asking about the situation is okay for a bit, just yeah, to you know to a, to too, appear to appear time. interested, right? Right. But but then but then shifting the situation to oh by the way, but you look amazing today, mm. okay? Or have you been losing weight? Have you been mm. adding weight? Have you been mm. you know, whatever, right? Something that's good. Not not lying to them, mm -hmm. okay? But, you know, you you could simply take that conversation and say, you know what, I know this is tough, but you know what's amazing that we still can spend time together, mm. okay? Or I know this is tough, but you know what's amazing, it's going to get better, okay? Or whatever. There's always a positive thing. I've yeah. trained my brain hmm, simply with with force, believe it or not. For every negative thing my brain will tell me, I will ask for nine good ones. So my brain is like really Machine. afraid. No, no, it's really afraid. Before before it actually tells me something negative, yeah. it's like, oh, do I want to find nine good ones? Like, can I just shut up now? So and that's your practice. Not, yeah, for every every absolutely. So if if yeah. you know if I if I, so I I had to park five six minutes away because I didn't know if I would have parking here. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you know it was a little warm still, and my brain was like, oh, it's too hot. Okay. That, to me, that counts as negative, all right? And I was like, okay, but what do we like about that? Steps that I'm going to add to my step count for the day. Mm -hmm. The fact that I found parking in the first place. The fact that I'm going to be meeting with Mona now after two, two and a half months of texting, <laughs> right? Now, right? I can come up with so many amazing things. The fact that I have legs to walk on, okay? The fact that I have a car to park. The fact I can go. So it's like to complete the hands? Yeah. So, so <laughs> if you tell me one bad one, you there are nine good nine. ones. Okay. Okay. I'm going to try this. Yeah, absolutely. And I our life that. is full of blessings, Mona. I really love that. Yeah. How are you so disciplined? Disciplined? <laughs> yeah. I'm not disciplined. I'm, uh, I'm I very... I think you are. I think you're very disciplined. I'm very... Uh, I'm like very, even that practice alone. I'm very adamant like... on the fact uh, that I can be better. I mean, I think it's the engineering mind. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think one of my very early discoveries around happiness, as I told you, is that we're born happy. That children are happy. And as an engineer, I, you know, when I, when I realized that, I said, okay, nothing wrong with the machine. The machine's actually, from a design point of view, it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. okay? The machine being? The physical form. A physical form. Right? Okay. And, and so, so it seems to function really well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's either defective, like a part broke, mm -hmm. okay? Or I'm running it wrong. Simple as that. Because it's actually capable of love capable of happiness and joy. Mm. It's an amazing thing. It's capable of analysis. It's cap capable of connection. Uh, you know, it's capable of appreciating beauty and really enjoying those wonderful moments. Mm. It's capable of that. Nothing wrong with the machine. Mm. Then either a part broke or I'm using it wrong. And when you say a part broke, what do you mean? 
uh, a trauma that affected okay. you or an event that changed your perception of something mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then you can find out what part broke, right? Through therapy and journaling or? Through therapy, through self-reflection, through uh, uh, talking to friends, mm-hmm. through honesty with yourself, mm-hmm. okay? I mean, you, you talk about my um, being a man and Middle Eastern and also in touch with my feminine. One of my biggest reflections ever in my life was after um, Nibel, my wonderful ex-wife and I were in love for seven years and then married for 22, right? And then we break up. Hmm? And my entire perception of my position in life, Middle Eastern Muslim man, uh, you know, what do I want going forward? What is my relationship with women? What is my relationship Mm. with my identity? What is my relationship with intimacy? What is my relationship with all of those things, right? That's a wonderful one and a half year project of reflection. Why not? It's like, uh, let's find out. Let's sit down and see what what part of the machine And and I I always say it's a triangle. So there is what you think, what you feel, and how you act. Mm -hmm. If those three are not matching, something's wrong with your machine. If my my thinking says, I am a Muslim Middle Eastern man, and I will never, you know, and and I'm a one-woman man, and I will never touch a woman again, but I'm looking at every beautiful woman that's passing by me, and I feel empty without the love of a woman in, in my life, then those three don't match. Mm-hmm. Okay, my heart and my body are saying no, no. You need another woman, and my my mind is saying no. You're only nibels, mm-hmm. right? That discrepancy, you can put it in your journal and say, interesting. Nothing to be done about it, but it's a point that we need to reflect on, mm-hmm. right? If you're going to work every day, that's your mind telling you I have to work really hard, but your heart is telling you I wish I could go on vacation, and your body is telling you I can't go to work tomorrow. That's a discrepancy, okay? Nothing to do about it. Write it down and say, this idea of working really hard, maybe I should reflect on that, right? And so on. It's so, it's so simple. Hmm? When, when you get those things, you get that curiosity. You know when, you know, you haven't for a while, but you know when you meet someone new, okay? She's so cute and so attractive and you're so curious about her, right? And you're like just spending time to discover every bit of her, hmm? That phase is how you should be with yourself all the time. I love that. Yeah. You're basically saying, oh, this Mo guy, that's, that's, that's me talking to me. This Mo guy seems to be different than what, mm. what, what he thinks he is. Let's sit with him and find out. If, if the three don't match, highlight to the Mo guy and say, it doesn't seem to be what you're telling yourself it is. And then what do you do? You just try to like keep exploring that part of your life. See which one of them is off. Mm. Again, it's engineering. huh? So if your emotions are matching your actions, Mm. then your mind is the one that's off. Mm. Okay. If your actions are matching your mind. So it's the majority rules. Or or, or, or it could be anything. I mean, most of the time that will be the one that's off, by the way. But they could be, all three of them could be off. Mm. Mm? So just sit, sit with yourself and say, and, and I also always have that beautiful exercise. I say, if God was super generous today and all the stars aligned, okay? Society wouldn't judge me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I wouldn't have to pay anything for it. I wouldn't, I'm not going to lose nothing, whatever. Okay? If all stars aligned, how would I behave? If all the stars aligned, what is my heart telling me? What mm-hmm. is my true nature? What is my resonance? Mm-hmm. Okay? 
if all the stars aligned, would I go around and sleep with every woman that I meet or would I want a one, one woman that I love and cherish dearly? Mm. Okay. By the way, hmm? I wouldn't judge anyone that would make either choices or any other choice. Yeah. Right? It's them. It's what their being, what their nature, what their conditioning, what their mm. current season in life is. Right. Right? And the question is very straightforward. The question is, if I removed my conditioning, my fear of society, my uh, beliefs that were, you know, pumped into me, who am I? Who am I? What, what, is, what is the reality of this person? By the way, I may not act on it, okay? But it's good to know who that person is. I feel like I need to do a lot of journaling after today. <laughs> journaling is key, <laughs> like absolutely. You really inspired me. I mean, lately, I, I love journaling. I just don't have the discipline of doing it daily, even weekly. Like, I feel like I'm at my happiest when I'm journaling a lot because I feel like then I kind of have a connection with myself. Totally. Lately, all I've been doing is brain dumping, which is just like, it's writing okay out as your well. thoughts and that's yeah. it. Okay, as well. But, but I, you have to read that brain dump. I do occasionally, and then I'm always like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I do that when I when I do when I do meet Becky in the morning, yeah. and I and I be, meet Becky is basically a brain dump, right? Yeah. And 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 what I do afterwards is I literally read it, and I go like, "That's so I, funny." It's, it's horrendous. <laughs> yeah. And I I scratch I them out. It. I scratch oh the god. ones that don't make sense out, and yeah. that visual view of them being scratched yeah. out goes like, "Okay, that yeah. didn't make any sense at all." It's so fun to read things from like five years ago. I know. It's awful. <laughs> yeah. I was like, who was I? What was I thinking? And then it kind of gives you perspective on like what you're worrying about today. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we'll do some, some quick Q and A's. Try to keep it quick. What would you say is your biggest misconception of happiness? My biggest misconception. Or the biggest misconception. Uh, the, The biggest misconception of happiness is that it's given to you. Okay. When in reality, your happiness is a choice. Absolutely. 100. I know I'm going to upset a lot of people with that, but you're absolutely 100%. Because if happiness is events minus expectations, okay, believe it or not, expectations, setting realistic expectations is entirely your choice, okay? And perceiving the event for the reality of what it is is entirely your choice, right? And every event on earth has a bit of negative and a bit of positive. If you choose to focus on the negative side of it, you know, you're, going, you're bound to, 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 to feel unhappy about mm-hmm. it. But if you see an event in its entirety, you're, you're bound to actually be happy with it. Because believe it or not, if you have the time and attention hmm, to uh, and, and brain cycles, as I say, to, uh, to, feel, to, to ponder an event and feel unhappy about it, okay, whether, whether that's event in the past or feel, you know, uh, uh, um, worried about it, whether it's a, if it's an event in the future, mm-hmm. that by definition means you're okay right now. Because if there was a tiger attacking you right now, you wouldn't have the time to look at an event in the past and be unhappy about it or an event in the future True. and be worried about it. I love that. And I feel like what I'm going to do now, I'm going to apply that nine to one rule. So whenever I'm trying to like take a situation and focus on the negative, I'm going to name yeah. nine things that are positive well, situations. So, so, so the Mona that I know, yeah. you probably need to do 99 to one. Really? Yeah, I mean, you're so <laughs> oh blessed. God. You're so loved. You're so Aww. wonderful. You're so gorgeous. You're, you're so, so everything, sweet. right? Thank you. And the truth is, if you really look at your life, our, you know, my life is blessed in every possible way. Alhamdulillah. Would you say that gratitude and happiness are the same thing? No. Gratitude is the ultimate form of, uh, of uh, conforming to the happiness equation. Mm. So we are happy when events meet or beat our expectations. When, 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 when it rains and we want it to rain, we're happy. 
Mm-hmm. Okay? Gratitude reminds our mind that it's not only meeting the expectation, that the events of your life are not only meeting your expectations, they are beating your expectations so much that you're grateful for them. Mm-hmm. Right? So when you tell yourself, I am grateful for the relationship I have with my friend, you're basically reaffirming to your to your brain that you that this event of you know having a good relationship with a friend meets your expectations of I need a friend in my life. Mm-hmm. And b- because of that, gratitude is the shortest cut to happiness. Okay? This is why thinking of of the good things about every event to be grateful for is an exercise of training. It's like going to the gym. Why? Because your brain is likely going to point out the negative because the negative is important for your survival. Okay? And that's building your happiness and gratitude muscle. Yeah, and, and basically what you do is you go to the, the to the happiness gym <laughs> and say, hey brain, what else is that. good, right? And mm-hmm. then immediately your brain goes like, okay, I can find a couple. And you say, no, no, I need seven more. Mm-hmm. And your brain starts to exercise literally like, you know, going to the gym and trying Mm -hmm. to carry a heavy weight so you build muscle, Mm -hmm. your brain goes like, okay, let me try to find four more of the seven. And when that happens, interestingly, your brain becomes good at seeing the positive. So if you do that frequently enough, like I do, most of what I see is beautiful. That's amazing. I rarely ever have my brain complaining and saying something's wrong. Okay. I love that. And 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 when it does, I go like, yeah. And I love that it's two hands because then it's like you can just do it on your hands. Yeah, and how and how yeah. many other things are right? Mm-hmm. Another side of gratitude, by mm-hmm. the way, is something that I call looking down. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you're listening to us right now, that means you have an electronic device. Uh, you have the safety to be in a place where you can listen to us. You have the you know uh, you're obviously not starving to death, right? And, and, and we forget about all of that. Why? Because someone else has a bigger electronic device and maybe more safety and whatever that is, right? I teach myself to look down. So, you know, I, got, I get so many messages from amazing humans in Syria, in Iran, in Ukraine. And, you know, when you really start to think that I could have been one of them struggling with what they're struggling, okay? By the way, this is a very good exercise to connect to them as humans. Remember, in Islam, we say, if So if you, if you can't help them out of it with your actions, at least, you know... Uh, um, Feel there. Um, yeah, at, at least, uh, you know, maybe help them with your words, either mm-hmm. words of kindness to them or words of awareness to others, or help them with, your, uh, with, with feeling it, with, with, with your heart, to mm-hmm. feel how, you know, to wish for them that, that, that things were different. And I think that reality of looking at those who are suffering more than us or who have less than us, which there will always be someone, by the way, is a very good reminder of how blessed you always are. That's such a great point because I feel like we always look up. Absolutely. Looking up, unfortunately. It's our nature. It's like we're always going to compare what we we could do that's better or like how many more followers we can have, how many more yeah. bags and shoes and everything. Absolutely. Like it's just... it's all, but it's also part of the, of the Western conditioning. Looking mm-hmm. up hmm, is, is a, is a, is a, is a path to self-esteem and, you know, it's a, it's a, sorry, it's a, it's a path to success that harms your self-esteem, mm-hmm. right? Because by looking up, you're saying, okay, Get someone, motivated. yeah, someone has more followers. Maybe I can, I can do something to be like them. Mm-hmm. And what do they do that I don't? But at the same time you go to, you, you go like, ah, 2.8 million is not enough, <laughs> right? is an interesting you know it's a curious comment mm. because what is enough then right if you if you if they have four and you reach four there will be something someone that has six 
Or Ronaldo. <laughs> that was like there 500 million. <laughs> there you go. That's your target, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my target is actually quite the opposite, believe it or not. Really? What is it? My, my target is that every follower that I have will get something positive out of following me. I love that. And, and it doesn't it's matter beautiful. if they're one person or mm. 500 million. See, I go through that battle. I'm like, I go through that. I'm such an extreme person. Like I'm, I'm part hippie, part bougie. I don't I know. know. What. I know. I actually, and I have this, this battle inside of me. Is like, just chill out, take it easy, be simple. But then the other part of me is like, stop it. You have to work hard. You have to achieve. You have to be driven. You know. So it's just like. Would this you believe that battle. this? So, so when we record you mm. on my podcast, this mm. was going to be my introduction really? of you. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> I wrote it down part exactly. Hippie, part that. bougie. <laughs> yeah. So I know we've gone on for quite a long time. No, I, I don't talk know if people are still listening forever. to us. Thank you. And I definitely am going to be hitting you up for coffee. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes. Did you guys hear that? So we're going to hold her accountable for this. Make any kind of this. coffee yeah. you want. You <laughs> decide. Um, but just for today, just to leave our, our community with um, maybe your final words of like wisdom, your advice, like if you could leave people just one, one thing, what would it be? I'd say happiness is a bit like fitness. I think most people don't recognize that. You know, when you when you go to a fitness uh, personal trainer and they make fitness so complicated, it's like mm. you have to move this part of your ear while you're holding the weight exactly this way. Mm. Yeah, if you want to be Mr. Olympia or like the, you know, the, the bikini champion in the world, maybe. But if you really take it in its simplistic form, uh, hap- you know, fitness is all about eat healthy and work out four to five times a week, right? The, the problem is, now that you've heard this, you're not any fitter, right? So knowing it does not make you fit. Mm-hmm. It's actually, it's making fitness your priority so you eat healthy and you work out four to five times a week that does. And the same is absolutely true with happiness. Mm-hmm. Okay? Most of us fail to find happiness, believe it or not, because it's not our priority. Mm-hmm. Our priority is success. Our priority is our ego. Our priority is our image. Our priority is the numbers, Right. And we're capable, humans, every human is capable. If you make something your priority, you're more likely to achieve that thing, okay? If you make it your priority to uh, binge watch uh, uh, Game of Thrones in less than four days, you may be able to. I don't know if that's even possible, mm-hmm. right? But, but, that's, but, but if you make your priority your happiness, okay, suddenly you're, you're, you're going to have to do what we do with fitness. You're going to have to basically make it your number one choice criteria. So when you're interviewing for the next job, you're not interviewing for $20 more, you're interviewing for a happier place, right? When you're dating, you're not dating for, you know, someone that will do A, B, and C, but someone that will make you happy, right? And, and, and then go to the happiness gym. Go to the happiness gym four to five times a week. Watch a documentary listen to a podcast, read a book, be with people that are happy by nature and observe them, you know, watch a comedy, whatever it is, four to five times a week, put yourself in a place where you learn to or become happier. Yeah, okay? I love that. And, and if, you, if you do that four to five times a week through neuroplasticity, which is the most incredible human uh, trait ever, your brain will be reconfigured. Over time, you'll find that you're happier. You'll find that you're practicing things that make you happier, you'll find that you're avoiding things that make you unhappy, you'll find yourself simply becoming happier, Mm. okay? Make it your priority and go to the gym. It's really as simple as that. I love that. And honestly, for everybody watching, 
please check out Mo's book, check out all of his channels, check out everything he does because it's all centered around being a happier, better version of yourself. And um, I really feel like if people read your book, listen, the audio is also great. I love that you're reading it yourself. Um, Check it out because it will definitely help you understand happiness a lot easier and just be happier. So I'm so grateful for your time today and for sharing your message with the world. You're such an incredible human. Oh my God, um, I'm so happy that we finally met. I'm so so happy happy that you gave me the time. And it was a wonderful conversation. I didn't notice the time. So thank you. I I hope people are not tired of us and they found value. No, I'm sure they want more for sure. You've got to come back around too. More than happy. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mo. Everybody, make sure you check out Mo, follow all of his channels, show him some love, check out Unstressable. Because there's a lot of things coming, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So check it out. Love you guys so much.